0: Hello and welcome to 10x9, 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Dorn and this is a very special, very romantic 10 by 9 podcast. Patrick <music> Watuma and I started 10x9 in September 2011 in the Black Box in Belfast, and we love it. And then, on April 12th, 2022, we got married in New York. And it was wonderful. So, for today's podcast, I've dived into the archive to bring you three amazing stories of love and marriage, not all of which go exactly to plan.
1: Just as in Bethlehem, there wasn't much room, and he certainly wasn't going to be sharing my bed. We weren't that sort of a
2: family. I was fascinated by Tracy immediately. She was quiet, incredibly pretty, and she was dancing in a way that seemed so self-contained and mysterious, I couldn't stop watching.
3: So he went for the herring, and I went for the lentils. I'd never heard of pui lentils. I didn't know there was more than one type of lentil. <laughs> <laughs> it felt a little daring.
0: <laughs> but as we always say at time by 9, life can be messy. And so our stories can also be messy. So watch out for the odd F word. Anyway, let's get on with it. And here's a story from October 2020 told on Zoom. Here's Helen McClements with her wedding day woes. And I think there's a dog wandering around in the background.
1: When do you think you'll get married? Everybody asked when we got engaged. Christmas, we said, a festive wedding during that lull before New Year terrible time said my mother you can't be asking people to drive through ice and snow a dreadful imposition they may not even come at all so we booked the 28th of december i shrugged off mum's dark mutterings her family was prone to gloom never fear i said when does it ever snow that much in ireland well that provoked the weather gods we'll show you they said the bastards This was the winter of 2010. Snow fell in relentless drifts and the city slowed to a snarled up standstill. Even breathing felt like a chore, my lungs unused to the savage bite in the air. In my head, I had seen roaring fires, sparkling dresses and steaming mulled wine. Now I feared icy roads, ambulances and pneumonia travellers languished in all major airports. My mother had to try hard to avoid saying, I told you so. I held my breath and prayed for global warming to kick in. (laughs) On Christmas Eve, my bridesmaid booked me a treat at the beauty salon. Don't flush the toilet, they said by way of greeting as we arrived. All the pipes are frozen and we can't turn on the boiler. We sat with blankets slung around our shoulders like Russian babuskas while they manicured our nails to the hum of blow heaters. In hindsight we should have cancelled a massage in a freezing room upstairs. My hands might feel a bit cold warned the therapist as I jumped three feet when she placed her icy palms on my shoulders. We left tenser than when we'd gone in but at least our nails were done. Feeling anxious, I rang the hotel and a cheery voice reassured us that they had running water and heating, so we were all good. I exhaled. It might, after all, be all right. One by one, our guests arrived from abroad. Robert from Montreal was staying with us. His flight had been rerouted to Dublin and he'd been bussed up to Belfast, jet lagged and frozen. A few whiskies cheered him initially, but when he woke at noon on Christmas Day, he wasn't in the form for the artisan sausages I'd bought at the Continental Market. I've got the flu, he grumbled, emitting loud trumpeting sneezes. Why the hell did you have to get married in the depth of winter, he moaned. I've just come from one frozen shithole to another. We had a pared-down Christmas dinner since my mother was obsessed by Operation Wedding Cake. My parents never swore or took the Lord's name in vain. Occasionally, Dad said "damn it," and I. But when I dropped a clangor, it was Mum who was the most disapproving. Language of the gutter, Helen. So when I heard a series of "shit," "shit," "shits" coming from the kitchen, I feared for the worst. The bad thing about making a cake at Christmas is that when it breaks in half, you can't depend on your local co-op having baking powder to make another. My mother had never in a lifetime of baking, run out of baking powder. But since everything else was going tits up, this did too. My fiance came down to spend Boxing Day. The mood was dismal with cake related crises and flu ridden guests. Just as in Bethlehem, there wasn't much room and he certainly wasn't going to be sharing my bed. We weren't that sort of a family. The poor crater spent the night in the Baltic front room the wind swishing down the chimney and my brother coming in a bit pissed and sitting on him at 2am. We arrived at the hotel the night before the wedding so I could wake up at the venue, relaxed and stress-free. I imagined swishing into the hotel in my new coat and sipping a glass of something chilled with twinkly lights in the background. Hello, I'm the bride, ready for tomorrow, I told the frazzled receptionist at check-in. Oh, right, she said. You're the other wedding. Everywhere there were small stampeding children like errant elves running amok while their parents looked on, oblivious. These children seemed magnetically drawn to us for the rest of the evening. Their parents looked as though they'd hit the bottle on Christmas of 2003 and hadn't stopped. I sought refuge in the Sauvignon Blanc at the table. Can't hear a bloody thing, said Robert. He got quite bin too. In short, it was all quite fraught. The snow had stopped, but a thick fog and mizzly rain descended on the day itself. I'd hoped to have a jog before breakfast. You'll not be heading out in that, said my mother, if you don't want to end up in the Royal. The hairdresser arrived earlier than expected. It was 9.45. I wasn't due to get married until 2.30. That road is dangerous ring your guests and warn them you don't want anyone killed on the way here she said no i certainly didn't for a person prone to anxiety this sparked a deep fear within i sat texting away while she curled my hair take care in the corner mind the fog until a pal put an end to it ringing to say that they were grown-ups and they could navigate their way safely and remember she said it's your flipping wedding day I was ready by half eleven. That left three long hours to sit about and wonder what else could go wrong. I opened a bottle of champagne and texted my husband-to-be, but there was no answer. I drank some more. Then the photographers arrived. Have you seen the groom? We can't find him anywhere, they said. Oh, fuck, I said. Helen, said my mother. I imagined the wee Nissan Micra, which he'd only just learnt to drive, Turned in the road on the way to the hotel, I saw the headlines. Bridegroom in pile up on frosty country lane because selfish fiance wanted a Christmas wedding. I sent my bridesmaid on a recce and she returned to say that Stevie had woken to no heating that morning and had to shower to friends. He'd arrived some time ago and was now chatting to the vicar. When I finally walked up the aisle, tears tripping me from excess bubbly and relief he was looking rockstar handsome with his black hair teased into curls the service itself gives me goosebumps to this day you're gorgeous so we are i slurred let me fetch you a drink he asked when we had done the line up, please don't i replied i'm already quite drunk but i can now tell you that champagne doesn't quell your nerves and only made me less able to tolerate the other wedding whose inebriated guest Stevie at one point had to bounce off the dance floor. The band was late, the meat was tough and at one point the electricity cut out. However, if I was having a bad day, the other bride was having a worse one. I may have been drunk, but at least I wasn't pregnant. Friends later saw her in the toilets having the most ferocious row with her mother. Aunties piled in to offer advice and pour themselves large vodkas from the bottles in their handbags. I could write a play about this, said one of my friends, all delighted. It could be called stories from around the cistern. All in all, it may have been one of the most strained experiences of my life. My wedding turned into a holiday special of EastEnders or Shameless. I dreamt of renewing our vows in the Maldives but even that's been marred by tales of human rights abuses and our very own crooked MPs. However, Stevie and I celebrate our 10th anniversary this year. We don't need another ceremony to celebrate our union, and since Christmas is a time of miracles, we rejoice in the fact that we find each other at all in this, the most topsy-turvy of worlds.
0: Helen, thanks so much. Always great to hear from you, and good to know Stevie is there to manage all your technical needs. Remember, if you have a story for 10 by 9 or you want to know more about what we do, check out our website, 10 9com There's plenty of info there, including all our dates for this year and a few other bits and pieces. OK, next up is a story told in July 2019, just before all the you-know-what
2: at the Fiddler Screen Festival in Ross Trevor. Here's David Brazel. I was an awkward, miserable child. When I was very young, I had a speech impediment and was severely long-sighted, which meant I had to wear thick, brown, national health spectacles, often with a patch over one eye. I was also incredibly clumsy, so I kept breaking the spectacles. My mom would then repair them with sellotape and sticking plaster and send me back to school. For a while, I wore special shoes which had leg braces fitted to fix an admir- uh, a fetal misalignment of my hips. I was a sickly child, always suffering from colds and tonsillitis and ear infections. For a while mum said she had appointments with me at every outpatient's department in the hospital, except maternity. These are not experiences that turn you into a confident, outgoing, popular child. These are the things that turn you into a shy, introverted, slightly awkward child. These are the things that push you out to the edge. And I was lonely on the edge. By the age of sixteen, I'd never had a girlfriend, unless you count Natalie Parrish, who I agreed to share with my friend Darren. I don't think we ever told Natalie about it, so it probably doesn't count. By the age of 16, I'd never had a girlfriend. Even some of my dorkiest of friends had managed it, but I hadn't. My friend Darren had had loads. So I thought it was too late, that it would never happen. It seemed so improbable. The only thing that gave me any hope at all was a dream I'd had when I was 14. Now, I don't believe in predictions, I don't believe in prophecy, I don't believe in dreams being anything supernatural. But this dream was so vivid, so real, so perfect, that it burned itself into my memory in a way that was both painful and comforting, so that I can still vividly remember it nearly 30 years later. It was a simple dream. In the dream, I'm standing at the edge of a cornfield leaning against a gate. It's a brilliantly sunny day. Everything is in hazy, slow motion, and there's a girl. I can't really see her, can't see her face. I just know that she's there, and I have this overwhelming feeling of being loved and in love. I remember waking from that dream, feeling totally bereft, thinking that I'd felt something real and true, and that I'd lost it. Maybe this meant it wasn't impossible. Maybe this meant it could happen. I honestly couldn't imagine how it ever would. So it's Christmas Eve, 1984. And I'm 16, standing in a small wooden hut beside a church where our youth group is having a Christmas party. We were called squibs, I still don't know why. There's music, there are small secret stashes of alcohol, and there is dancing. I am not dancing. Even after half a pint of snake bite, that's um, equal parts Heineken and Strongbow, if you want the recipe. I don't dance. But I'm standing at the edge watching, and it's fun. It's the best Christmas ever. We're a small group of friends from the same school, the same church. Band Aids, Do They Know It's Christmas, is blaring out from a cassette deck, singing, It's Christmas Time, There's No Need to Be Afraid. I am becoming increasingly terrified, mainly because our friend Paula has brought her best friend, Tracy, to the party. I was fascinated by Tracy immediately. She was quiet, incredibly pretty, and she was dancing in a way that seemed so self-contained and mysterious I couldn't stop watching. At some point earlier in the evening, with all the confidence of snakebite, I had hidden her Michael Jackson cassette, and she had kicked me in the shins. Things were going well. So I'm standing on the edge of the circle when suddenly, out of nowhere, Tracy grabs me by the scarf. It was the 80s, we were all wearing scarves indoors. She pulls me back into the circle, swings me around, we dance together briefly, and then she lets go of one end of the scarf so that I fall over. She keeps the scarf, refuses to give it back, and wears it for the rest of the night. For me, it was love at first sight. For her, it took about three months. After Christmas, we started bumping into each other at church. At school, she'd walk past my desk provocatively in history. She also sat behind me in math so that I'd often have to turn around to casually ask for a pencil or ask a question. I found I could talk to her, which was unusual. Eventually, I plucked up the courage to ask her if she'd go out with me, and amazingly, she said no. <laughs> but she said it kindly. And there was reasons, and we kept talking, and we got to know each other more. And sometimes I'd walk home with her, and sometimes we would stand and talk by her front gate. And it felt like there was something there. So after another few weeks, I asked her out again. And this time, she said no. (laughs) So we talked some more. Our friends giggled about us behind our backs, and we got to know each other. And after a few more weeks, I asked if she'd go out with me again. And this time, she said, sort of. For three months, we circled, three months of talking, laughing, slowly opening up to each other. Then at the end of March, at another party, a wedding disco in the same church hall, we had a row, because I, quite the ladies' man now, sort of danced with someone else. And then we sat in a dark church alone together for a while, went back into the disco, and danced all of the slow dances together. The next day, when I asked her on the phone if we could go out together, she said, I think we already are. Last year, Tracy and I celebrated our silver wedding anniversary. (laughs) At another wedding party just a few years ago, I found myself, as usual, standing alone on the edge of the dance floor, just outside the lights, nursing a pint, not dancing, but watching her dance. I realized it's where I've often stood over the years. It's where I feel the most comfortable, and as long as I can see her, watch her, at the end of an evening, maybe slow shuffle around to a slow dance, then that's where I'm happy. I wrote a poem about that moment, about the dream and about how we met and about how many times I've stood there. Standing on the edge of a dance floor, watching my once, my always. Standing on the edge of a dance floor, watching my future wife. There was a comedian on TV recently, I think it might have been Angela Barnes, who said she can't stand people who marry their childhood sweethearts. They really annoy her. There are seven billion people in the world, she says. What are the odds that the perfect one for you is going to sit behind you in maths? She's got a point, I suppose. But one of the things I learned in O-level statistics is that just because something is improbable doesn't make it impossible. And I'm pretty sure that the day I learned that, sitting in maths, my billion-to-one chance was sitting at the desk right behind me. Thanks, David. You're romantic, you. And David's going back down to sit next to Tracy. <laughs> that
0: was a little burst of podrig there, and there's no denying what a beautiful story that was, David. Thank you so much, and how wonderful that Tracy was there to hear it. Now, 10 9 is always free and always will be, but we'd be really grateful if you'd help us to keep it going the events and this podcast with a donation via Patreon or PayPal. There are links at the website 10 9com but we also know that we're all being squeezed right now so if it's not possible, please relax. The best way to support us is to sit back and keep listening. On to our third story now and I've heard it many times and it still has me laughing out loud every time. This recording was made in September 2018 at our comedy night in the Black Box in Belfast. Let's join Helen Killick on her Paris honeymoon
3: We were young and in love and in Paris. It was November 1995 and there was snow in the air, but we didn't mind. We were swept up in the romance of the city. We had planned the trip together and had agreed on most of the things we both wanted to do, but because we were young and in love, we included one thing each in the itinerary to accommodate the other's interests. For me, my husband willingly sat through a French avant-garde music performance. He looked a little bit awkward as the only man in the room not wearing a black existentialist polo neck jumper. (laughs) My husband, the son of a County Down sheep farmer, whose musical experience only stretched a few cornet lessons, did his best to pass himself off as an aficionado of contemporary electronic music. So the next day, it was his choice of activity we were young in love and in paris and my husband had only one thing on his mind food (laughs) a romantic dinner in an authentic parisian bistro so after much research he carefully chose one that came highly recommended this bistro was a bit off the beaten track up a dark cobbled street Light and laughter spilled out from the windows and the front door, complete with doorman in smart warm coat and shiny shoes. It was a proper Parisian restaurant, full of animated locals, speaking very quickly and very loudly. There was no way I would be able to keep up with my schoolgirl French. The doorman looked closely at us as he opened the door and allowed us to enter, but I knew he could tell we were gastronomic imposters. Inside was a little slice of Parisian life. The zinc bar, the tables with crisp white tablecloths and silver cutlery, even people sitting with small dogs on their laps. I couldn't help thinking that it was obvious to everyone that we didn't really belong there. People looked at us but quickly dismissed us and carried on their noisy conversations. We were shown to a table for two in a corner of the room, not far from the door. I smiled at the lady at the table beside us. The lady ignored me. <laughs> the small dog sitting on her knee looked hostile. <laughs> we were presented with the menu of the day, a set menu with little choice. But we'd read that the food here was delicious, so we were prepared to go with whatever was on offer. So after a little bit of dictionary translation, this was what was on offer. The starter? Rolled herring or puy lentils main course cod and potatoes not really the culinary delights i was expecting but looking around it wow. seemed that people were enjoying the food and this was his choice so i had to give it a go the waiter inquired if we decided if we decided so he went for the herring and i went for the lentils i'd never heard of puy lentils i didn't know there was more than one type of lentil <laughs> it felt a little daring <laughs> The waiter presented us with an enormous bowl of herring and an equally enormous bowl of greeny brown lentils. Even my husband, the food king, looked surprised at the huge pile of pickled fish placed in front of him. We looked at the waiter. He smiled and said something quickly in French that I didn't quite catch. I smiled back and said, merci. (laughs) Merci. And I lifted the large spoon that had arrived with the bowl of lentils and began. <laughs> the earthy pellets were beautifully cooked, still holding their shape but soft in the middle. I had a few more spoonfuls while Herringman tucked into his box. <laughs> After I'd been munching lentils for a while, I stopped for a moment. I'd hardly made any impact on the lentil mountain. He was still tucking in heartily to the herring, but there still seemed to be lots left. So I had another go, and I ate a few more spoonfuls. The novelty of this new kind of lentil was starting to wear off. I began to feel that I might have had enough, but I thought, if he can sit through electronic music without complaining, I can make my way through this pile of lentils. (laughs) I began to have a sense of a few eyes on me as I laboured through the never-ending lentil pot. <laughs> the waiter hovered. He said something which might have been "Is everything okay?" but it might not. And I made appreciative noises and imagined mm, "Delicious." <laughs> more lentils. More eyes. The noise of conversations around us dropped as people looked at us. The waiter was back again. I felt under pressure. Was it a test? <laughs> Would it be considered rude if I didn't manage to finish, given that the bistro was renowned for its great food and wonderful atmosphere? So, I kept going. <laughs> lentils and more lentils. I really had enough. Herring man was looking like he'd enough too, but we still had lots left. I wondered if the people around me had eaten the lentils too and how they'd coped with such large portions. <laughs> So a few more half-hearted spoonfuls and then I had to admit defeat. I couldn't squeeze in another lentil. So I put down the spoon and sat back feeling a bit uncomfortable. The waiter swooped in. Vous êtes venus? Oui, I said as apologetically as I could. I tried to say it was very nice, just too much, but he didn't wait long enough for me to work it out in French. Instead, he lifted the bowl and moved it to the next table. (laughs) Offering it to a grumpy-looking couple who, it turns out, had been patiently waiting for their turn. (laughs) Each of them spooned a small quantity of lentils onto their side plates. (laughs) before passing the bowl to the next table. (laughs) The same thing happened with the herring. The bowls were passed around the room until everyone who wanted lentils or herring had an adequate sufficiency out of the communal pot. (laughs) the truth about our faux pas dawned. My physical discomfort was matched by my acute embarrassment. And just when things couldn't get any worse, the main course arrived. <laughs> Substantial pieces of cod looking at me defiantly from a top of a mound of potatoes. My stomach said no way. In fact, it said, I advise you to get outside into the fresh air as quickly as you can. <laughs> My husband and I looked at each other. We hadn't been married long, but we knew exactly what the other was thinking. He left the money on the table, and we made a hasty exit. Just not quite hasty enough. As I ran out into the dark street, I dramatically threw up the puy lentils <laughs> onto the cobbles and the shiny shoes of the dark. <laughs> I don't know what or where kwee is, but it turns out the word has a certain onomatopoeia about it. (laughs) My husband put his arm around me and said, don't worry, you never have to eat another kwee lentil again. (laughs) And we made our way through the cobbled streets back to the dignity of our hotel. And here's the postscript. Despite the disaster of our not-so-romantic dinner we have happy memories of Paris in 1995 not just because we were young and in love or the laugh we get thinking about it now but because of this memento of our first trip to Paris she arrived nine months later with eyes the color of perfectly cooked
0: Helen, thank you so much. What a great story and what a gorgeous ending. Helen's husband, Campbell, as well as young Rosie, who made an appearance at the end of that story and is now all grown up, also feature on the 10 by 9 podcast in various places. Just before we go, if you're interested, there are a few photos on the 10 by 9 social media feeds, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram from the day Padraig and I tied the knot. We'd like to thank all the people who made it happen on what was an amazing day especially Matt Hyde, who conducted the service, the 12 guests who joined us, and Peter and Leah, who opened their beautiful home to us and to whom we are forever grateful. I'd recommend a New York wedding to anyone. And also a big shout out to Kevin, who I met on Cape Cod and who is a fan of the podcast. And that is it for this podcast. We love to hear from you. So keep in touch with us on social media, the usual places. Also email, which is story at 10by9.com or via our website, 10 9com Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes and tell as many people as you can about the podcast. It's the best way to get noticed. Thanks to our wonderful audiences, but the biggest thanks today go to Helen McClements, David Brazel, and Helen Killick. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. For now though, bye-bye.